when we think about um, this passage, one of the things that comes to me is thinking about destination versus direction. Sometimes you can have the right destination in all the wrong directions. And, 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 and so when, I, when, when I, I literally had this experience a couple of weeks ago where uh, one of my colleagues um, 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 was trying to get to a place that we were meeting and they reached out and they called and they said, hey, I've put the directions in, but, but it has me, it doesn't have me where I'm supposed to be. And so we started trying to backtrack, okay, where are you? Can you look around and see uh, what, where, where you are? And they're like, okay, there's a parking lot here, there's this there, there's this landmark here, and we're saying, okay, you are nowhere where you're supposed to be. None of those landmarks make any sense to anybody in the room, uh, but keep sharing where where you are. And so they, they said, hey, I put the address in. I put the address in that you guys gave me. Well, it turns out that when you put the address into a certain map that, um, that, that they happen to be using, it takes you to an entirely different location. And all of, the, all of the directions are wrong. So you put in the right address, but you took all the wrong steps. And so it doesn't really matter if you put in the right address. You took all the wrong steps, so you ended up in the wrong place. Does that make sense? And so there are, and when you look at this text, there are a lot of steps. Even though this is Israel, and, and, and Israel um, has, has proclaimed and professed that they worship the one true God, there are a lot of steps that they are taking that is not getting them to that destination. It's getting them to an entirely different destination. And so this destination is actually a road towards judgment. That's where they're heading, based on all of the wrong steps that they're taking. So I want to talk about these steps that are leading to this road to, road to judgment, and then I want to talk about what's actually in this road of judgment that they are experiencing, and then I want to spend a few minutes talking about the right steps that we need to take to get to, right, to the right place. And so as you look at this text, beginning at verse 4, there's a couple of questions that serve as steps that are on the road to judgment. The first question is, who will actually lead us? Verse 4. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. You see, whenever we answer this question, who will lead us with our wisdom rather than God's wisdom, we are taking steps towards trouble and away from God's protection and away from God's blessing. We are choosing kings. This is what Israel is doing. They're choosing kings at this point without consulting the king. Israel has not considered carefully as they appoint leaders to lead God's people, whether God desires for them to lead God's people, the people that they're calling and appointing to lead them. You know, one of the swiftest ways for the church to move away from the blessing of the Lord it's for the church to use worldly standards and worldly qualifications to appoint its leaders rather than spiritual and divine ones. You see, Israel has sought leaders in accordance to their own knowledge. Israel has sought leaders in accordance to their own wisdom and not the knowledge and not the wisdom of God. And thus it has led to the trouble that we're about to read. But that's not the only steps away from God's protection and blessing that you can take. One question is, of course, who will lead us? But another question is, who will we actually worship? Verse 5 and 6, it says, I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. 
Israel's leaders, instead of turning their devotion and their dependence towards the God of the universe, erected golden calves like they did coming out of Egypt. And they point the people's devotion towards the calves rather than God. And this infuriated God. God says, my anger burns against them. He says, the calf will be broken to pieces. Remember, our God, according to himself, is a jealous one. Exodus chapter 34 and 14, it says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. We, we invite disruption into our lives when we introduce golden calves into our lives to depend on rather than God himself. You see, brothers and sisters, the created cannot adequately and fully protect, defend, and provide for the created. Only the creator can. And whenever we invite the creator to serve the role of the creator, we introduce trouble into our lives. And not only can the created not properly serve the created, only the creator can, neither can a dead idol properly, adequately, fully protect, defend, and provide for the living. Only the living God can. And saints of God, we invite trouble into our lives when we try to bring dead idols into our lives to protect, defend, and protect and, and provide for us. Let me ask you a question this morning. How is your life reflecting this truth right now in this moment? Does your life reflect trust and does your life reflect dependence on the God of the universe? Or, or does your life reflect trust and dependence on the gods of this earth? Money, power, sex. How is your life reflecting the truth that my provision, my protection, my security, my defense cannot come from the created? It can only come from the creator. How is your life currently reflecting this truth that my dependence or my protection, my provision, my security cannot, be, cannot come from dead idols like money, power, and sex? It can only come from the living God. How is your life reflecting that truth right now? What other steps do we see that are leading us away from God's protection and blessing? Where, who will we serve? Or not rather who will we serve, but rather who will we worship? Who will lead us? Where will we sow? Verse 7, for they sow the whirlwind, or for they sow the wind rather, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower if it were to yield. Strangers would devour it. The idea here is that when you sow something, the wind, it's, 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 the wind is considered fleeting and in some sense worthless. You're just kind of basically almost like you're just throwing something. You're just waving your hand, so to speak. So sowing to the wind means you're sowing something fleeting and you're sowing something worthless and insignificant. But when we sow worthlessness, when we sow insignificance from our lives or into our lives, you will get something back. God says the whirlwind. So you sow worthless things in, but you get destruction back. You see that? Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We are never 
simply sowing frivolously and not producing something in return. You're not sowing emptiness and, produce, and not producing something in return. You don't get emptiness back for emptiness sown. Are you tracking with that? You don't get triviality back for triviality sown. You don't get worthlessness back for worthlessness sown. When you live a life of emptiness and when you live a life of triviality and when you live a life of worthlessness, you are reaping something in return. And that oftentimes is destruction. You see, if we live lives sowing to idolatry or sowing to the fleeting or sowing to the insignificant or sowing to the destructive, whether it be destructive relationships, frivolous lifestyles, we will eventually reap from that sowing. What other steps push us away from God's protection and blessing? Which, by the way, you guys know, um, for those of you all who have not been here, we're doing a flyover type of uh, sermon series through the Minor Prophets. And so we're quickly covering three chapters today uh, because that's, what, that's how we're tackling the Minor Prophets. So we're working through 8 through 10. So you're gonna, we're going to move pretty fast through all these verses. But what other steps do we see as it relates to um, um, steps that we are moving away from God's protection and God's blessing on the road to judgment. Here's another step. Who will we align with? Verses 8 through 10. Israel is swallowed up already. They are among the nations as a useless vessel, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey, wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Israel is seeking strong nations to partner with, even if those nations are evil, because their goal is protection at all costs. Their goal is power. But because they've discounted the Lord in their calculation for protection and in their calculation for provision, and because they, they bring very little to the table with these nations, they are ripe, from the, are ripe for the picking from these nations. It says Israel swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. They're brokering agreements, but they don't even know what they're getting into as they broker these agreements. Who will we align with? If we think that pragmatism is the only thing that matters, and so I'm just going to partner myself with the people who are going to get me where I want to be, regardless of what those people stand for, regardless of what those people represent, regardless of whether those people care for, uh, for others or not, then we are sadly mistaken if we think that there, that will not carry consequence and penalty as Israel sees. Verses 8 uh, verses 11 through 14, we see another step that leads us towards judgment. How will we worship? Verse 11, it says, because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him by laws, by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied, multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Notice something about Israel, saints. They do not lack zeal for worship. 
They do not lack enthusiasm for worship. It says that Israel, Ephraim, has multiplied altars for sinning. They have become to him altars for sinning. It says, were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. So they aren't following the law of the Lord. They don't even recognize the law of the Lord, yet they are putting forward altars and they are erecting altars and they are putting forward sacrifices. It is not zeal for worship that they lack. It is zeal for worship of the true God that they lack. You know, we can go through the activity saints. We can go through the gyrations and the rhythms, so to speak. We can, we can do this. We can practice and we can play this out and kind, of, and kind of act out church and act out worship. But where is the heart? For Israel, they're going through the motions. They're putting up altars. They're erecting monuments, but their hearts are far from God. And so it's not just simply if you worship or how you worship that serves as a stepping stone in one direction or the other. And so all of these things are taking place, and as a result, they are, on, they are stepping towards judgment. And so you see that judgment unveiled in chapter 9. Verse 1, it says, Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt, exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved the prostitutes' wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine, that shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not Come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, nettles shall possess their precious things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler snares on, on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gebeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will finish their sins. This is a very complicated passage. This, really, this whole, these, this, this whole three chapters has a lot of complicated language in it. And, and what are we to make of this? Well, in verses 1 through 9, the prophet reveals that when our hearts are ultimately turned away from God, as we have seen in chapter 8, our uninspired worship of God only moves us from vibrant life to walking dead. The feast and festivals we see first that were created to be a place of worship of God with joy were now void of joy and ultimately void of God because they were void of true worship of God. In fact, God says, take joy in these festivals no more. 
Don't rejoice. This is a time. Now, the festivals are supposed to be a time for rejoicing. But here God says, don't rejoice anymore. Because as you exercise your activity in these festivals, your heart has turned far from me towards other lovers. The threshing floor and the wine vat were places where the produce of the field was taken to be processed and prepared for consumption and enjoyment. The grain to the threshing floor for wheat and the fruit to the vat for wine. It, is, it was believed to be a very public place, these, these places, and a gathering place even during festivals. However, in the pagan countries and in the pagan cities and the pagan nations, it was also a place for great sin. Because many believed that you might also find idol and cult prostitutes there, where the townsmen would meet and take, take them to engage in sexual practices in service to the fertility gods and in service to the harvest gods. Why? Because you got wine vats, you got, you got a um, threshing floor, all these things are about produce and harvest, and so in the presence or in this space, there's festival, there's activity, but there's also gross sin. And so they would leave not only sexually gratified, but they would leave with the expectation and the belief that their harvest would be plentiful because they participated in these acts. So when we hear the words, you love the prostitutes' wages on the threshing floor in chapter 9, we can reasonably assume that Israel has taken this practice into their own camp. Among other sins that they've taken into their own camp. And it's prompting the Lord to declare these harsh judgments against them. First, he says that the threshing floor and the wine vat will no longer produce anything useful and nourishing for them. You see, they've left the one who provides. They've left God. So it should come as no surprise that they lose their replenishment. They lose their nourishment. Their offerings of grain, secondly, their offerings of grain and wine are no longer acceptable to him because they've now corrupted the produce that, that they've produced with idolatry. Thus, it is no longer acceptable before God. In fact, God calls it, did you hear, did you, did you read that in chapter 9? He calls it mourner's bread. You see, Israel has strict guidance as to what to do with things that have been in the presence of the dead, the presence of corpse. In Numbers chapter 19, Numbers chapter 19, anyone associated with a corpse was declared unclean for an extended period of time. But anyone who touched anything that the unclean person touched was also declared unclean for a period of time. And this is a very startling statement by God, which is because, which, which, and basically he's saying is that because of your sin and because of your evil and because of your, your, your turn away from me, you have not only corrupted all offerings, but you have also corrupted everyone associated with those offerings. See, saints of God, because we have, to, we have to anticipate or we have to realize that when the religious life is absent of God's presence and absent of God's worship, it can have a corrosive effect on everything around it. 
Another thing that we see is, is, is that as a result of Israel's loss of worship, now the prophet is seen as the crazy one. You hear it, you hear it in, in chapter 9, verse, verse uh, um, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 6 and 7. The days of punishment, verse 7, the days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and your great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways. A hatred in the house of his God. The more we give in to idolatry, the more God's true words sound antagonistic to us. Does that make sense? The more we give into idolatry, the more God's words sound like bad words. Sounds like bad wisdom. Sounds like wisdom that's to be rejected rather than embraced. When this happens, then the ones who are sharing God's words in its purest forms are seen as the crazy ones and the unreasonable ones and the outdated ones. And the ones that don't have any ability to relate to what's going on in the real world. You see, the prophets become the people's source of frustration and the people's source of anger and the people's source of condemnation. Why? Not because God's words have changed, but because the people's appetite has changed. Does that make sense to you? The further we, the further we dive down into the rabbit holes of idolatry in the culture the stranger God's words become to our ears. And we begin to read things in Scripture that are clearly, clearly laying out God's will for our lives, and we begin to say, well, I don't know about that. Well, the reason you don't know about that is not because God has changed, but because you are allowing idolatry to have its way in your heart and replace God's wisdom for your own. For example, when we give into the sexual liberty of the culture, and there may be the prophet of God that stands before you and declares that sex before marriage is out of step with God's law. And some people are like, well, I mean, really? Does he really expect us to date and get married and never have sex? That just seems unreasonable, God. He can't be saying that. But that's not God changing saints. That's idolatry creeping in and producing new wisdom in your life. Whenever that happens, God's law is considered crazy and out of touch. When we give into the divisiveness and the merciless nature of the culture, cutting people off as soon as they step outside of the boundaries of our own ideas, demonizing those who we disagree with, the prophet of God stands up, he declares that the meek and gentle are the ones who are truly blessed. They will inherit the earth. But that becomes unreasonable to us. That becomes unreasonable. Well, I mean, how, how am I supposed to be meek and survive in this cold world? How am I supposed to be gentle and survive in this cold world? That's not how the real world works, preacher. You understand what's happening there? The idolatry of the culture creeping in. Telling you that the strong shall survive, so be strong. Don't let anyone push you around. Don't let anyone talk to you any kind of way. You better say something. You better cut them off if they do something wrong. All of those things are idolatry creeping in. 
Because when you read Jesus, he's giving you new wisdom, wisdom that is totally contrary to what you're, to what you're, what you're leaning towards. So you have to ask yourself, why aren't you leaning towards him? And very rarely is it, not very rarely, never is it because he's changed. It's because of the idolatry of the cultures creeping into your life and giving you new wisdom to match up against God's wisdom. All of this is what happens when we allow our life of worship to be poisoned by our, our idolatry and our chasing of other gods. But our, but our idolatry also has other impacts. In verse 10, we see, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I see your fathers. But they came to Baal of Peor, Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing that they love. When we're on the road to judgment, our fruitfulness turns into fruitlessness. To drive the point home further for, for, for Israel and, and driving the point of the impact of idol worship, God takes Israel back to the early days of their covenant, uh, covenant relationship with him. He compares Israel in those days, in those early days, to grapes in the wilderness, the first fig on a new fig tree. In other words, they were a surprise relief and a surprise refreshment for the Lord, a fruitful people. But then they gave themselves over to the idols of the land. And when they did, they lost their fruitful nature. You see it in Israel's worship of Baal Peor in Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25 is what God is most likely referencing here because this is where Baal Peor is worshipped by Israel. In Numbers chapter 25, verse 1 through 5, it says, When Israel, or while Israel, lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of, uh, those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal Peor. See, this worship of this idol again came as a result of this intermingling of cultures that led not just to an uh, innocent adoption of customs and an innocent adoption of traditions, but literally a turning away from God. And these men not only sexually connected with these women from another nation, but they spiritually connected with these women, taking on their gods as their own. And as a result, it cost them their very own lives. Now, hearing that, we might be inclined to think more about the depths of these men, but Hosea seems to be connecting to some of the other ideas being mentioned in this worship of Baal Peor. See, Baal Peor also appears to be connected to fertility and harvest. Again, this ideal of worship, in, uh, worship as uh, harvest and worship in fertility. Baal Peor is the same thing, meaning that these sexual acts were intended to lead Israel to a more fruitful harvest. But instead, the idolatry carried them farther away from fruitfulness to fruitlessness. Their idolatry actually had the exact opposite effect that they intended for it to have. They were committed to idolatry in hopes that they would be fruitful. But in their commitment to idolatry, they became fruitless. 
Verse 11, it says, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth. Listen to that. No pregnancy. No conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Verse 14, give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Verse 16, Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. He's talking about this idea that this country, this nation wants to be fruitful, and in order to be fruitful, they are turning to other gods and pursuing other gods' ways in order to be fruitful. And so he says, if you want to turn to other gods in order to be fruitful, you will be fruitless. Saints of God, idolatry promises, promises prosperity. It promises fruitfulness. But in the end, it always leads to barrenness. Some of us throw it all away for money. Throw all of our, throw all of our connection to God, all of our relationship with God, all of our time with God, all of our fellowship with God. We throw it all away for money. Because we believe that money will ultimately make us more productive, more fruitful, more joyful, more alive, more happy, or happier. But when we become obsessed with it, it only robs us of our humanity. It deadens us. It makes us less joyful, less fruitful, less productive. We just become zombies, obsessed by the craving. We become zombies chasing the sight or chasing the smell of it, but completely and totally dead and absent of spiritual response. Can you think of anything else besides money that you give yourself over to, that you thought would give you life, that you thought would give you fruitfulness, but only eventually robbed you of that fruitfulness, deadened your senses, emptied you of all, emptied you of all spiritual response? Maybe it was a relationship that you knew God didn't have or that you knew didn't have God supporting your life. But you continued down that path because it made you feel alive until it didn't any longer. Maybe it was a moment where you retaliated against someone that hurt you or you retaliated against someone that offended you. Or maybe you withheld forgiveness from that someone because you somehow thought that it would make you feel better to withhold that, to make them hurt like you hurt. Only to discover that it didn't make you feel any better and didn't do anything to take the pain and the hurt away that they caused you. It didn't make you more fruitful. It made you fruitless. This is what idolatry does. Idolatry takes away from God while promising what only God can give you. Moving into chapter 10. We see that, that the festivals have turned to funerals as a result of this judgment. And we see that the fruitfulness has turned to fruitlessness as a result of this judgment. Now, as we turn to the last chapter, we see that the wine, or the vine, rather, has turned to weeds. Verse 1, it says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear God. And a king, what could he do for us? 
They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants so judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. Israel was given plenty and blessed with more and more. But instead of that plenty being seen and absorbed and taken in and embraced with thanksgiving back to God, they redirected the plenty that they received back towards the altars and the sacred stones of the false gods. They took the plenty that they were given and they erected more altars to worship the false gods. They erected more sacred stones to worship the false gods. You see, saints, we have an unfortunate tendency to believe that the more resources we, we have, the easier our problems will be. We have a tendency to believe that the more resources will always answer our problems, or more resources will always answer our problems. But there is oftentimes a greater likelihood that more resources will clearly unveil the problems that are present. Israel got more resources, they grew, they became a luxuriant vine. And that did not solve their issues. They just erected more, more altars for idol worship. I recall one athlete years ago, a pro athlete, declaring that the only thing money ultimately did in his life was more clearly reveal the character that lied underneath his poverty. If he was a slave to sex, the money only more clearly revealed his slavery. If he was bound by alcohol and drugs, the money only more clearly revealed it. The more resources he had available to him, the more his brokenness was revealed. Are you tracking with that? Israel's idolatry isn't answered by resources. It's heightened by the resources. Instead of the blessing of prosperity leading to a resurgence of pure and true devotion and true and pure worship, it instead leads to more false religion, more idolatry. Verse 2 points to the fact that the people had deceived themselves into believing, however, that they were indeed in God's blessing as they built more monuments to feed their idolatry. So in judgment, God humbles Israel by destroying all of the altars. He humbles Israel by destroying all of the sacred pillars and sacred stones that they erected. But he does not stop there. In fact, by the time that God's done, we get to verse 3. And he says, from now they will say, or for now they will say, we have no king for we do not fear the Lord. A king, what could he do for us? In other words, they have sought long and, and, and sought diligently to operate outside of God and appoint for themselves a king with power and with influence who's going to make sure that they're protected and defended and provided for. And God says, when, I, when I'm done, there will be no king at all. And even with the king, when I'm done, you will look and you will say, it wouldn't matter if we did have one. We're facing God's judgment. And so it doesn't matter what person you appoint into this position. Our only help is him. If he doesn't turn his judgment away, it shall not be turned. So what of this great prosperous vine in Israel that declares, and maybe not in word, but 
in deed and heart that they no longer need God. What, what is happening to this grapevine? We see it in verse 7. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Av- Avon, the son of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. This is the end of every man made kingdom. This is the end of every single man made kingdom that would seek to elevate itself above the true king of the universe. Pick the mightiest kings that you want. Look high and low. Israel thinks they have a great one. Here in verse 7, we hear that that king shall perish like a twig on the face of of the waters. The king doesn't stand a chance against this God. The altars, the altars, they built so many of them, remember? They had all this, they had all this wealth, all this plenty. They were erecting altars everywhere. But those altars don't stand a chance against this God. If those altars are not erected for this God, those altars will come down. They will be destroyed. Thanks to God, if we choose to chase and pursue other gods, if we choose to chase and pursue other idols, if we choose to make them our gods, if we choose to chase and pursue other kings and try to make them our king instead of the king, these are the steps towards judgment. This is where our steps of unrighteousness ultimately lead us. And so how do we fix this? What do we do? Verse 12, it says this. Chapter 10, verse 12, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You know, we, we, don't, we don't get where we need to go because we're... We're all on this path looking for peace and joy and hope and satisfaction. We're all on this path. We don't get there taking all of these steps away from God. We get there taking these steps towards God. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Sow righteousness. Reap. Steadfast love. Sow, win, reap, whirlwind. Sow, righteousness, reap. Steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. The hardness of heart. The hardness of heart that tells you that you don't need God. The hardness of heart that says, I can do it by myself. The hardness of heart that says, yeah, let's, 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 let's find another political leader that can, that can replace this king and lead us to green pastures. No, he says, break up the fallow ground, for it is time not to seek anything else, not to seek any other idols. It is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Right destination, right directions. We get there by seeking the Lord. In fact, what we hear in John chapter 14, verse 6 
is that Jesus said to them what? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's like God, everything that we're looking for comes through the path of Jesus Christ. Don't believe the hype outside in this world that tells you that it's going to come through the path of more money or it's going to come through the path of more influence or it's going to come through the path of more power or it's going to come through the path of better sex or it's going to come through the path of, you know, this man or it's going to come through the path of this woman. Don't believe the hype. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It comes through the path of the one who went up on Calvary's hill, hung on a cross, bled and died, took the punishment that we all deserved in order that we might, in his resurrection power, reign with him if we believe and trust him by faith. It comes through that path. It begins by us simply acknowledging that it comes through that path and turning our attention and our affections and our pursuit away from all the paths that the world is directing us towards and towards the path of Jesus Christ. And on that path, not only do we have a right destination in mind, but we are on the right, or we are, we are taking the right directions to get there. Let's pray. God, we love you.